And today I'm going to talk about the mission. The mission is how the vision is realized. And so if we want this room to be full of diverse people from all different walks of life, how do we get there? Well, we have to commit to a mission that brings the vision to expression. And our mission is simply this, make disciples of all people. Make disciples of all people. We gather together to worship, but then we go out and we're looking to share the good news of Jesus with people in order that they might come to know Christ and, and serve him and, and become part of this family. But I want you to read this mission statement with me. Our mission is to make disciples of all people in the reconciling good news of Jesus Christ through gospel proclamation, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, and kingdom demonstration, spirit-led deeds of love, justice, and mercy. That's our vision, and we're, we're going to unpack that today. In the passage that Chevelle is about to read, Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, and he's about to ascend to heaven, and he gives his disciples the mission to make disciples. So disciples make more disciples. And this is a very famous passage called the Great Commission. That's your second point. Write down commission. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. In 1983, the year 1983, a church in Concord, California, made the headlines. And they made the headlines for something a little bit scandalous. The church in 1983 in Concord, California, made the headlines because they bought a pornographic theater. They bought a theater that was used uh, kind of to dehumanize people. And they bought the theater, though, with good intentions. They realized that the theater was kind of a dark place, and it had dark effects on the people that went in there, and the whole industry it represented was dark. And not only that, but it had dark effects in the community around it. And so they said, we're going to buy that theater, and we're going to take it over, and we're going to change it into something new. Well, the problem was when they bought it, there was still a two-year lease with the theater. And so this church had to own a pornographic theater for two years before they could get in and restore it. Now, they had authority over the building. It was their building, but all that authority was not yet fully seen. They hadn't yet been able to get in and get out what should be out and bring light in and change the theater into something that would give life to the community. Well, they waited those two years, and you can imagine for those two years, they were probably waiting at the front door to get in and get out what should get out and bring in the life of God into that building. Well, after two years, they did get in, and they get in and they renovated that place, and they changed it from a place of darkness into a place of light. They made it into a community center where there was recovery groups and a counseling center and other things that benefited the community rather than brought darkness in the community. They renewed and restored it. Now, they had authority over the building the whole time, 
But that authority wasn't fully seen until the lease was over. I want you to think this morning as we talk about the Great Commission, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about that theater, that broken theater, that dark theater, as this broken, dark world. You know, I, I know that as you experience life as it really is, it is broken. As I've heard some of your stories this week, there's things that are happening, and it's hard. We lost a family friend this week, and it's been very difficult for me to kind of process that. I want you to think of this broken world as that broken, dark theater. But then I want you to think the purchase of that theater as the work of Jesus. I want you to think about how Jesus died to pay for our sins, and he bought us back from sin and slavery to sin, and his resurrection, which purchased us new life. I want you to think about the purchase of that building as the work of Jesus on our behalf. But then there's that two-year waiting period. There's that two-year waiting period where we haven't fully seen the authority of Jesus like we want to. But just like those people were waiting at the door to get in and renew and restore that building, so Jesus is waiting to come back and renew and restore all broken things and all dark things. But during that time that we wait for him to come back, we're waiting for him. We're waiting for him to restore things. Just as the church had authority over the building and was waiting to get in and restore it, so Jesus has all authority right now. And he's waiting to return and make all things new. That's what he tells his disciples. All authority has been given to me. I'm in charge. The Father has handed me authority over the entire universe. But one day, that authority will be fully realized when Jesus comes back and renews and restores this broken world. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he's handed all authority by the Father. He has accomplished the work that he came to do. The difference is this, though. The church had to wait two years to get into that building. But Jesus sends us into a broken, darkened world, dark world, to live out his authority right now. Tom Wright writes, we are given the responsibility to go ahead and make real in the world the authority which Jesus already has. So during that two-year waiting period, the church had to stay out, but Jesus sends us ahead and says, Go ahead and start the work of renewal and restoring. Live under my authority as king. How do we do that? Well, we've talked about it the past couple weeks. We, we come together, we worship the King Jesus. We don't see King Jesus, but we're going to live this morning knowing that he's in charge and he's ruling and reigning, and we're going to worship him and submit to him together. And then we're going to go out from here and demonstrate his kingdom in our city. But we also do that by calling other people to live under the authority of Jesus Christ. Though you don't see the authority realized, he is in fact in charge. And one day when he returns and renews and restores all things, you will see his authority. So live now in light of then. Live now under the authority of Jesus. And that is our mission. And that mission is simply to make disciples to bring people under the reign of Jesus Christ so that they no longer live for themselves, but they live in light of the restoration that is to come. 
our mission is to make disciples. What is a disciple? Well, if you've been in church a long time, some of you might have a really long definition of what a disciple is. And if you've never been in church, you might not even be familiar with that term. Um, simply put, a, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. It's someone who's following after Jesus, who's listening to what Jesus says, and who's following Jesus' commands. I like Carl Ellis's jun Jr.'s uh, quote about what a disciple is because it's really helpful. It says, the disciple is someone in the process of learning to obey all that Christ commands. So it's someone that's placed themselves under the authority that Jesus already has and says, though you don't see the authority of Jesus yet, I'm going to live under that authority and I'm going to follow him because one day he'll come back and you will see him as king and I'm going to live under that kingship right now. This morning I want to just talk a little bit about disciples and I'm going to make three points. Uh, disciples are made, disciples are marked, and disciples are molded. Disciples are made, disciples are marked, and disciples are molded. If you're looking for the last word, it's obey. The Ellis quote, the key word is obey. But let's talk about disciples and how they're made. Uh, disciples are made with intentionality. Jesus calls his first disciples and says, come, I'm going to make you into something. He goes and pursues after all the, the men who become disciples. In Mark 1.17, Jesus is passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net out into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Disciples are made with intentionality, and we see that Jesus goes and calls people to live as his disciples. But the funny thing is, being a disciple means that you're making a disciple. The very first time Jesus talks about being a disciple, it's being a disciple that learns how to call other people to be disciples. Follow me, go back one, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Discipleship in and of itself is about helping other people follow Jesus just like you are. In fact, David Platt puts it this way. He says, to be a disciple of Jesus is to make disciples of Jesus. You write down the word make. So how do we do that? What does it look like to make a disciple? Well, you know, we talk about it every week. We go and we share the good news of what Christ has done for us, that he died in our place, that we're no longer under the wrath and the judgment of God, but we've been restored to God as our Father because Jesus' blood covers all of our sin. We share that, but then we also demonstrate who Jesus is, spirit-led deeds of justice and mercy. And then we call people. We call people to faith in Christ and to obey Christ. We share the gospel with them. We call them to believe the gospel. That, that's how disciples are made, but it's a process after that. It's a process after that. If you go back uh, one slide, you notice that Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become. I will make you become fishers of men. Discipleship is not a one-time event. It's not you got saved and then you have fire insurance. It's a lifetime of learning to follow Jesus and live under him as king. I love that definition because there's some bad definitions of discipleship in the church. And one of those is there are Christians and then there's disciples. 
And disciples are the people who are really serious. And they really follow Jesus. And those people who are just Christians, ah, forget them. They're not trying hard enough. I find that definition problematic because what's going to happen is that no one's going to want to be around you to grow as a disciple. And so if you're a disciple who's meant to make disciples, you're going to be very alone in that process because no one's going to be around you. Because no, there is no perfect disciple. We all need grace every day and we need forgiveness every day and we're all learning every day what it means to follow Jesus. And sometimes we take two steps forward and one step back or one step forward and two steps back, two steps back, but it's a process. And there is no perfect disciple. Though we are to commit ourselves to discipleship, there's no special rankings within disciples. There's no the better disciples and the worst disciples. I mean, if you read the story of the disciples through the Gospels, they're all pretty horrible at it. There's not one that's better than the other. When Jesus goes to the cross, they all abandon him. And they all forget everything that he's taught them. And I would argue that we're probably very much the same way. We can commit ourselves to discipleship, but we often fall drastically short of it. In fact, the fact that the way Jesus marks us as disciples shows us that there really is no special class of disciples. Disciples are made, but disciples are also marked. And everyone is given the same mark, the mark of baptism. In verse 18 and 19, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nation, nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the mark of discipleship. And baptism is a mark of decision. Some of you have been part of churches where when you're baptized, everyone sings, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, and amen. Discipleship is a decision, and the mark of baptism is a mark of decision that you're going to live differently, that you're publicly saying something about who you are in the direction of your life. But baptism is also a mark of cleansing. You can write down decision and cleansing. In Titus 3, 4 through 7, Paul uses this imagery to talk about baptism. And he says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done. Someone say amen. (laughs) But according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Baptism is really a sign of what we call the new covenant. The new covenant that God has bound with us through Jesus Christ. And that he's promised to cleanse us, not just outwardly, but inwardly in our hearts. So that we begin to love God. And we begin to love the things that God loves. And we begin to say, I no longer want to live for the things that I used to live for. I want to live and I want to follow Jesus. Baptism is a mark of cleansing, of the Holy Spirit being poured out in our lives and changing us. Which is one of the reasons that we do pouring when we baptize. Because the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our lives. 
Baptism is a mark of decision and it's a mark of cleansing. But what's most evident in this particular passage is that baptism is a mark of belonging. See, it's not just about what you're telling everybody else and what you're telling God. Baptism is about what God is telling you. In this passage, Jesus instructs that each person be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's no empty ritual. That's not just something we say because we're told to. That's deeply significant, and it's incredibly rich in meaning. It's not just a ritual. It is a seal of God's name on you. Much like my wife took my name when we were married, so you are taking God's name over you. He is sealing and binding himself to you. Never will he leave you or forsake you because the Trinitarian name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has been said over you in your baptism. It is a mark of belonging. It's a seal. It's something that you're meant to look at and remember and go, I've been baptized. God's promises are for me. His name has been spoken of, over me. I'm his, and he's mine. It's not just my declaration to him. It's his declaration to me, to you. Things go missing in my house all the time, and it's not my fault. I have three small children. Last week, I was looking for something under the couch, and I found my driver's license under the couch. And I didn't know my driver's license was missing, but there it was. Evidently, someone had found it in my wallet and decided the best place for it was under, underneath the couch. And now my, my wedding ring is missing, and I have not been able to find it in four weeks. And it really could be anywhere. It could be anywhere. My two-year-old could have sold it on eBay to make some snack money. I don't know. I have no idea where it is. Um, but the ring that I should be wearing is really a sign that I belong to somebody. When you go out, and if you're single, and if you're looking to meet that special someone, and you see a ring on somebody, you leave them alone. Because you know they belong to somebody. And in the same way, your baptism's like a ring. It's meant to say you belong to God. You're his. It's, your, it's his mark. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're saved once you get baptized, but the salvation is meant to be pictured in the baptism. You're meant to remember it and go, I belong to God. But I also belong to his people. Baptism isn't just an individual thing. It's a church thing. It's a family thing. And I think in our culture, we've gotten away from that. We've gotten to this idea where you can kind of just show up and get the baptism experience and get the t-shirt and go home. And I think, okay, that's okay. But look, there's more. Because baptism doesn't only mean that you belong to the God whose name you've been baptized under, but that you belong to the people who also share the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit with you. We belong to each other. We're meant to be deeply connected to each other. and We're meant to go, we've been baptized together. We belong to God together, and therefore we belong to each other. Look how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, say it, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all 
and in um, Paul's saying that the basis of our Christian community and like putting up with people who you don't like and learning to love one another, one another even when it costs is the fact that you have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together. You belong to God together. And therefore, we belong to each other because we share a common baptism. We have God's name over us together. This is one of the reasons why when we talk about making disciples in our mission statement, it says that we want to disciple people in the reconciling good news of Jesus. And the reconciling good news of Jesus is that what, because of what Jesus has done, you have been reconciled to your Father in heaven. There's no condemnation. There's no fear. You and him are one. His name is over you. That same good news reconciles us to people who are very different from us. Rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, people from all different countries and nations and tribes have been baptized with one baptism. And therefore, baptism is a celebration not just for one person, but for us as the church. It's the reconciling good news of Jesus, and that means that we're actually called to walk together unity, peace, and love. You know, one of the challenges to that is actually all the technology that we see. Now, I love YouTube, and I love watching sermons on YouTube and studying on YouTube and listening to apps, but we've developed in our culture something called the cyber disciple. The cyber disciple, because you have access to the things of the church without going to church, you can sort of live in this world where you're removed from the actual life of the church, but you feel like you're there. Now, again, I'm not saying podcasts or YouTube are wrong. We do all those things. But look at, look, look at the difference between a cyber disciple and a connected and committed disciple. The cyber disciple receives solid teaching. But the connected and committed disciple receives solid teaching through the ministry of the Word, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, and proper use of accountability in the church. The cyber disciple, in term, when it comes to gifts, receives the gifts of the pastor in the organization because they're tapping in via podcasts and YouTube. But the connected and committed disciple receives the personal gifts of the pastor, elders, deacons, and fellow members of the church. The cyber disciple has to fight sin alone, but the connected and committed disciple fights for and with the members of the body by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. When it comes to love and service, the cyber disciple receives the service of the pastor in the organization, but the connected and committed disciple grows in their love and service to fellow members as they are loved and served by them. And then lastly, the cyber disciple listens to whoever they want, whenever they want, submitting to whatever they like and disregarding whatever they don't. But the connected and committed disciple is led and submits to other members in love through the oversight of the church according scripture. In that Ephesians 4 passage, before Paul talks about baptism, he says, bear with one another in love. And you can't be a cyber disciple and do the one another's. You've got to be in the church with other people who have been baptized with you. Jesus uses that phrase, one another, over seven times in his teaching. And the disciples who were with Jesus used that phrase, one another, 17 times in their writings in the New Testament. Love one another, serve one another, bear with one another, submit to one another, show compassion to one another. Our 
baptism means we're supposed to be connected and committed in a local expression of the church. All those resources that we have are wonderful and they're incredibly helpful, but they're not meant to be the core of what you experience in your Christian faith. It's us, people together who have been baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are His. We belong to God and we belong to each other because we have been marked by baptism. Disciples are made and disciples are marked and disciples are also molded. In verse 20, Jesus says, teaching them, them to observe everything I have commanded you. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I took the kids over to Holland Park on North Lake and there was an observation tower. And we took the kids up to the top of the observation tower and both basically had a heart attack because they're climbing on the, the rails and about to fall off and all this kind of stuff. But what we got up at the observation tower, we were able to get up there. It was absolutely beautiful. If you haven't been over to Holland Park on North Lake and Hollywood, go there, climb to the top, and you just get to watch the boats go by. You get to watch. You get to observe. You don't have to touch anything or interact with anything. You don't have to implement anything in your life. You just watch. Now, that's wonderful when it comes to an observation tower. That doesn't work when it comes to discipleship. And when Jesus uses the word observe here, he doesn't mean just watch like you're in an observation tower. That word in the Greek means something more like carefully attend to every detail. Interact with it. Internalize it and then live it out. Observe everything I have commanded you. Francis Chan, a pastor, has this great illustration where he says that what we do with the commands of Jesus is we have Bible studies and we like to talk about them and then we get into the Greek words of the commands and we, we write out these journals and then he goes, but do we ever actually do them? Do we ever actually do the commands? And he makes this joke about how he doesn't go to his daughter and say, hey, clean your room. And he doesn't expect her to like write that down and then like diagram the sentence and talk about what it means to clean her room. No, he simply wants her to implement that. Like, clean your room now. Like, go for it. Don't analyze all the words. I said, clean your room, so go clean your room. And I think as Christians, oftentimes, we simply observe instead of implement. And what Jesus means by observe here is not watch, but do. Not to just stare at and study, but study so that you can live it out in your life. Carefully teaching them to observe everything I have now, that's a process. None of us get that overnight. And like I said, we go two steps forward and one step back, and we need incredible amounts of grace and forgiveness. But the command is also clear to pay attention to the commands. So we can't ignore that. We can't focus on some things and ignore the things that are hard and the things that we don't like and even the things that we disagree with because Jesus says, teach them to observe everything. And what happens in our life is when those things that we don't like become hard to do, when the commands of Jesus are hard to do, we say, well, I'm going to focus on the ones that I like doing. And I'm not going to worry about those other things. But here it is. Observe everything. And we're to put those things back on the table as things that we're called to do. Now, that doesn't mean we do them perfectly. 
but it means we do say Jesus is calling us to do them. And what can I do to put them into practice in my life so I'm not just observing them, I'm actually implementing them. And we need much prayer for them. There was a young couple. Um, there was a young couple who were not believers. The, the man had been a believer, but he'd kind of grown away from the faith. And his fiance was not interested in the faith at all. And they both kind of were drawn to this church, and they, not this church, but a church. They went to a church together. And as they started going to this church together, something really weird happened. They would go home, and she would start to read the Bible. Even though she had not come from a family of faith, she would just pick up the Bible and start reading it. And she'd read more and more and more, and then she had questions and questions and questions. And so she would start to ask her fiancé. And she'd say, what does this mean? And though he didn't believe it, he knew the answers for it because he'd grown up in a Christian home. And as he started to say the answers out loud, he found that he actually started to believe it. And as he said it to her, she found out that she started to believe it as well. And they started going, what is going on with us? Like, what is happening here? Like, we're being drawn to the things of Jesus. And I had walked away from those, and my, my fiancé had never known those things, but something is changing in us. They went to the pastor, and they explained what was happening. And he began to explain to them what salvation was and how you can know the grace of God through Jesus Christ and, and then forgiven all of your sins. And they, they, they said, Pastor, um, we've got to be honest with you. Uh, we're not married yet, but we're sleeping together. What should we do? We have two weeks till our wedding. Two weeks till the wedding. Now, I'm a pastor, but I know what's going on. And I know that there's a temptation in our culture just to say some things, but not all things. And I mean, as we think about this couple, they're only two weeks away. That's all they got left. You know, it's two weeks. What's the big deal? But the pastor said, have you seen the grace of God in your life through Jesus Christ? They said, yes. We recognize that he's doing something inside of us and that he's changing us and he's making us love him. And he said, well, how do you want to said, look, we only have two weeks left until our marriage. And for those two weeks, we're not going to sleep together. We're not going to sleep together because that's important to Jesus. And it's not that they might have even understood it fully, but they said, listen, if this is important to Jesus, the one who has sacrificed himself for us, then we don't really have an option. Out of gratitude for what he's done for us, we're going to abstain for the next two weeks. And even though we haven't walked in that for the last years, we've got the moment right now. And we want to observe all things that Jesus commands right now. And we want to start our marriage off saying Jesus is the most important and not ignoring all things and only focusing on some things. And they did. Out of gratitude for what Jesus had done, they, they walked in purity over the next few weeks. And I love that it wasn't about the guilt. It was about seeing the grace of God. And that caused them to make a really tough decision. They did it because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. They molded themselves to what Jesus had commanded. Now, I know some of you go, well, wait a minute. That feels like you're imposing a little bit. Well, I'm going to tell you, Jesus is always going to impose on our cultural norms. He's always going to. It doesn't matter what culture you go to. If you go, if you go uh, to, like, the Middle East and you start talking about forgiveness, they'll say, that's crazy. In our culture, that's more normal. 
But in every culture, Jesus is going to, uh, to bring things in that feel abnormal. And this is one of the things in our culture. See, a lot of people will say Jesus is a good moral teacher. And he is at the very least. At the very least, he's a good moral teacher. But let me challenge you, if that's you, if he's a good moral teacher, why not submit to his teaching? Why not come under him? Why not come under him? Why not submit yourself to what he teaches? If you think he's good, if you think he teaches good morals, why wouldn't you say, I want him to change my life and I want to follow him? Jesus is not just a good moral teacher, but he's different than any teacher that's ever lived. And the reason is twofold. One is he absolutely practiced what he preached. There was no hypocrisy in him. There was no virtue signaling or doing things and then, and then behind the doors doing something different. Look, even as we talk about sexuality and what he taught, Jesus was around women all the time who adored him. And I'm going to shock you. Jesus is still a virgin. Jesus absolutely practiced what he preached. He never took advantage of anybody. And he walked in purity. But not only that, Jesus is even more different because he's present with us by his Holy Spirit. The last verse, Jesus says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, every moral teacher that's come and has had good moral teaching has died. And therefore, they're simply an inspiration to us now. But Jesus is the only teacher who has died and then risen again and promises by his spirit to be present with us and empower us so that we can live out his teaching and make more disciples of his. He's utterly unique in that he's not just an inspiration, he's actually present in power in the midst of his people, helping them follow his ways. For your last word, right? Present. Jesus died for us as his followers. He rose from the dead in power. And then he ascended to the right hand of God and sent his spirit to live and dwell in us that by the presence of him and his power, we might actually follow him and make more disciples of his and submit our lives to the king. His presence shapes us and empowers us. And that's what this table means. That's what the Lord's Supper means. Baptism is about belonging, but the, the Supper is about the empowering presence of Jesus. This isn't really the body and blood of Jesus, but it does remind us that his spirit is present with us. This table is for those who would say, I'm following Jesus. I want to obey all things that he commands, and though I'm doing a very poor job at it, I want that. It's for someone who says, I'm repenting of my sins and I'm trusting in him and I need his empowering presence with me to do that. I would just encourage you today as we're about to take the Lord's Supper, ask yourself, get real with yourself. Is that me? Like have I turned away from sin and am I following Christ? Am I deliberately ignoring all things and just focusing on some things? Or even this, am I passively avoiding being part of the church? Because this is really for a community of disciples who say, 
though we are poor disciples, we are trying our best to follow Christ. And this reminds us that he has died for our sins and is present with us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Jesus, Messiah, we thank you. We thank you that we're not following someone who's dead and just looking and remembering you for inspiration. We're following someone who's present with us right now, who sees all our sin and shame and covers it with your blood, who sends his spirit to walk with us in power. I pray today that you would empower us as your people. Help us to follow you better, and we need your help to do that. And all God's people said, amen. The table is open. Just come forward, and we'll serve three or four of you at a time. Come forward, Tony.